Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have a very special episode for you that I've been looking forward to for a while now. Throughout history, people have sought the heights of human potential to become as wise, strong, happy, and loving as any person can ever be. Call these peak experiences or the sense of oneness or even enlightenment itself. And now science is revealing how these remarkable ways of being seem to be based on equally remarkable changes in our own nervous system. Most of the people who set out on that journey to the heights, to what is plausibly the ultimate in personal growth, never reach the summit. But that doesn't make the trip any less worthwhile. That There's... is such a good point. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you. You broke me out of my central read here. Yeah, no, I think that it's a central part of the whole conversation, which we'll get into in a moment. There's, to some degree, an existential question as to whether there is such a thing as a summit at all. Some of the people who've made it there are famous, but most probably aren't. And the breakthroughs experienced by these individuals are more attainable than ever before. So what do they have in common? How did they reach the summit? And what can we learn from them? This is the subject of uh, my friend, co-host, and father, Rick Hansen's new Come. book, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Uh, it comes out May 5th and is now available for pre-order. So, Dad, I'm really looking forward to this today. How are you doing? I am so looking forward to this conversation because I just love this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So we're planning on doing a couple of episodes related to Neurodharma. We'll kind of see where we go today, have at least one follow-up and maybe more depending on how much we talk about. And at this point, I've seen you write five books, and I've also written one book with you. And I, I have to say, honestly, that this is probably the one that I've seen you the most engaged with in terms of your personal enjoyment yeah. from writing it. Like, just the um, just your experience in the authorship process seems to have been the most engaged and like mm. fun and fulfilled by the ideas that you were exploring. So I think it's good to probably start the conversation by just talking about like why that was for you. Wow. Well, it's just so delightful for me to mm. do this. And people watching might, especially if they're parents, can just imagine how this is, you know, really on a five-star scale, this is at least 12 stars. So <laughs> <laughs> do this with just you. Just take the victory lap on it. Yeah. Wow. It reminds me actually of this experience I had with someone you know, a friend of mine named Bob. Mm. And he and I with another friend were rafting down or actually canoeing down the Green River in Colorado on the way to the to the confluence with the Colorado River. And for four nights, we camped out. And what would often happen is that in the morning, Bob and I would wake up and after breakfast and coffee, we'd start looking around for some really neat hill or peak or canyon that we could go explore. And our other friend, he was perfectly content to just kind of sit there in a camp chair puffing on his cigar, literally, drinking coffee <laughs> and reading poetry and literature. He, he's a, Sounds like a great he time. Was, he was into that. Uh, but Bob and I were like, you know, yo, it looks really cool out there. What would it be like to stand on top of that thing? The view would be better. And the journey could be really neat. And I think we could do it. Let's just head out and we'll bring along some supplies. Worst case, we'll turn around if we need to, but let's go for it. So there's something about that spirit uh, with regard to... What we could say is the upper quarter, the upper tenth even, of human potential. What can mm. we actually experience as the resting state of our own being? 
sort of the wallpaper even, the background sense of our own consciousness as we do the dishes, struggle with traffic, manage, you know, the latest healthcare scare. What's it like to be you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've always just had that kind of adventuresome spirit. Mm -hmm. And I've been very drawn to people who are a little further up the path because they're the ones we can learn from. Uh, back when I was playing tennis uh, at any level, I would prefer to play people that were better than me because even if I could not score a single point, I could improve my backhand or something like that. I could just learn from them and have fun. So that same spirit is applied here too in terms of, all right, how can you be as strong and happy, as calm and wise, as loving and resilient as any humans have ever been? Yeah. So this book for me, to answer your question directly, is this combination of the neatest, latest neuroscience about what's cooking inside the coconut, as it were, what's cooking, what's going on, combined with profound, deep wisdom Yeah, that as you approach the top of the summit becomes increasingly universal. Mm. There might be different paths to, to the peak of human potential, but when you start getting closer and closer, you kind of start converging on what's actually possible. I drew upon the roadmap from the original teachings of the Buddha. Uh, they're very psychological. They're very practical. In a fundamental sense, they're not religious. They're not metaphysical. Uh, there's nothing particularly mystical about most of them. And so the combination of the two, the coolest science and the most penetrating wisdom, most profound stuff, just was wonderful mm. to marinate in over the year it took to write the book. Yeah. So you just kind of alluded to it there. The title of the book, Neurodharma, it's two words combined into yeah. one word, essentially. Yeah. And I think that, as you're saying, the book really is that. It's these two things combined into one. So why did you choose that title? And what is it about each of those aspects of the book that appealed to you? Well, to use a technical term, for me at least, there's something kind of badass about the title. <laughs> it's a little in your face. This is it's... the most Rick Hansen form of badass that I could possibly <laughs> think about. Only you would be like, Neurodharma, that's really sick, bro. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, you know, it's a little audacious. And yet it's literally true. So sure, yeah. uh, if you think about it, we can know ourselves in two ways. We can know ourselves from the inside out, like what does it feel like subjectively, experientially in this moment, and we can know ourselves objectively from the outside in, scientifically from what's called a third-person perspective. Until very recently, the only ways we could really know our own minds were from the inside out, and that was enough for those throughout history who've gone all the way to the summit without an MRI. Okay, but in the last 20 years, We've learned a few things, mm. if especially the last 10, about what's actually happening inside what Charles Sherrington called the enchanted loom that's continually weaving this moment of consciousness. What's actually, how does the loom work? And what can we do to tweak it? So for me, neurodharma is where, is my term for where these two ways of knowing ourselves meet. From the outside in, objectively, grounded in science, and subjectively drawing on a penetrating understanding of our own mind uh, using that word dharma, which just simply means the truth of things. It's not mm. a religious word. It's, not the, it's a foreign word. It comes from Sanskrit. But it's, it's not the property of any particular tradition. So as you've said, one of the big focuses of the book is the modern brain science of happiness. And one of the things that I think is really unique about the book, not to 
pitch it to anyone or anything. But uh, not that you'd ever not do that. that. I would ever do that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, totally not a priority. Um, is how I think that it's this wonderful combination of really very approachable, very readable. It's in a friendly, very like warm and friendly tone. You have your kind of very as my girlfriend likes to describe you, kind of like the Mr. Rogers of self-help to a certain extent, sort of vibe going on throughout it. And also it has about 600 footnotes in it. Yeah, it does. So if you're really interested in diving into the kind of informational basis, the research, uh, the nuanced background material that underpins the whole book, you have 600 footnotes worth of content there if you really want to delve into in that. In the back of it. In sure, the back, in the of, back of it. Back. Out of sight, <laughs> unless you want to go there. <laughs> sure, endnotes, whatever they are. But obviously there's a huge research basis that you're drawing upon yeah. for the claims that you're making in the book and for the practices that you're proposing that people follow. And as you said, the Buddha didn't have an MRI machine on his personal path to enlightenment. If you believe that there was a Buddha, if you believe he was enlightened, whatever you sure, want to think about it. Favorite, pick your sage, favorite sage, sage whatever. Teacher, yeah, 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 totally. Any one of those kind of individuals who've reached the quote unquote top of the mountain, yeah. however you want to frame Getting it. Getting pretty close, yep. Yeah, totally. So. He didn't have an MRI machine, and he kind of got there anyway. So what is it that we've learned in the last 10 to 100 years, you know, pick your number, yeah. that allows us to be better at personal development? Like, what can science teach us about personal growth? That's great. And I have a four-point plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you we always take, have a four-point plan. You can take that out if you, you want. You always well, have a four-point plan. Well, I, I can think of four things, yeah, really. Yeah, totally. and, and they're pitfalls. They're mm -hmm. pitfalls in bringing in neuroscience, whether it's into psychotherapy or spiritual practice or personal growth of any kind. But, yeah. but um, benefits, I think. One, it's motivating. When you know that your personal practices, now based on MRI scans and tons and tons of evidence, are leaving lasting traces behind in your own brain, uh, extending altogether throughout your own body, when you know that, it doesn't add any value in terms of sharpening your techniques or your methods, but it's motivating. And motivation on the path of practice uh, is really, really important. Number two, if you appreciate that most if not all of our experiences in any moment mm. are in are being constructed uh, on the basis of what is actually happening inside the body, particularly its nervous system, particularly its brain, that gives you a common framework for all the various methods, all the various approaches around the world and all the traditions of the world for healing, resilient well-being and functioning, personal growth, self-actualization, and even the higher reaches of human possibility in terms of ultimate awakening. Mm. So there's a common framework, and it gives you a way of, of understanding better that some teacher in Sufism or some Brooklyn therapist or some secular mindfulness uh, teacher or some you know, ancient person in the Buddhist tradition, even though they're using very different language, it converges around a single thing that's useful. It's a common framework. Third, when you understand what's going on in the hardware that's actually shaping this moment of experience in the enchanted loom, it highlights methods that are already existing in the 10,000 tools warehouse of all the psycho-spiritual traditions around the world, except which one do you use? So, for example, if you know that the brain has a negativity bias, mm -hmm. it highlights the tools that focus on emotionally positive experiences. 
If you also know, for example, that the uh, neural substrates of working memory and the upper outer frontal regions of the brain, which uh, regulate essentially whether you're paying steady attention to one particular thing at a time, when you learn that those uh, neural substrates have a kind of gate that keeps out the invaders so you can focus on one thing, and that gate is regulated by dopamine so that when there's a steady stream of the experience of reward, the gate stays closed. And also, Mm. uh, if you can prevent a spike in dopamine levels based on wonderful new rewards coming, the gate stays closed and you can keep focusing on what you're trying to pay attention to. Okay, so it's about the focus of attention. Yeah, so steadiness of mind. That then takes you into uh, methods that draw upon rich experiences of contentment and tranquility and even bliss so that you can really, really stay focused. Fourth benefit, brand new value, value added. For example, when you start to know objectively that this moment of irritability, this moment of exasperation, this moment of hurt is based on the operation of millions uh, billions potentially of neurons and various gooey molecular processes on a time scale of tenths of a second, when you know that it helps you take your own reactions kind of less seriously. Mm, mm-hmm. They're there. They're to be managed. They're to be accepted. They're there. They're not to be discounted or ignored. But you start having more of an impersonal sense mm. of your own consciousness as the local expression of a vast countless number of causes inside your own body, let alone causes extending out uh, into the wider world. Uh, And that's good. Mm -hmm. It helps you be less attached to what you're experiencing in the moment, less caught up in it. Also, uh, learning of how the hardware works um, in terms of other sorts of new methods can take you into things like certain practices that I explore in the book that draw on what we're learning about, for example, Mm -hmm. what is actually happening in the brain plausibly when people start having these radical, non-dual, self-transcending experiences. Yeah, so I actually just wanted to ask you about that. How is the brain, to the extent that we can tell, of a quote-unquote enlightened person different from your brain or my brain? Understanding, yeah. of course, that I myself approach enlightenment every day, but yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, as Suzuki Roshi <laughs> said uh, in a great quote, sure, he yeah. said essentially, close quote, I'm not sure that there are enlightened people. Mm. I am sure that there are enlightened moments. Hmm. That's a great way to frame that. I haven't heard that one, actually. Yeah. It, well, it's good. And it's kind of like, well, how many instants or how many seconds or even. 10 seconds in a row, even minutes in a row in your day, have a quality of enlightenment about them, as we might individually define that word. So to your question, well, this is an area of emerging science. The science on it is pretty minimal. There are plausible guesses we can make, and I explore them in the book with a certain modesty about what people are developing. Mm. So we can Mm -hmm. kind of work backwards. And this takes us to a fundamental idea. That if you want to get good at something, whether it's tennis or rock climbing or the highest happiness, study the people who are farther along. So we can see that people who have perfected great steadiness of mind, great unshakable unconditional love, we can see that they have exquisitely developed 
what can be studied even in the brains of college sophomores uh, in more pedestrian ways. So there is some evidence for that. The little that we do know is that if you take people who have 20,000 or even 50,000 lifetime years of meditative practice under their belt, mm. you know, they're very far along, maybe not quite at the ultimate pinnacle, or maybe they are. Um, a lot of the people who are the farthest along just have zero interest and in being poked and prodded by a bunch of scientists lying in an MRI. But one of the findings, I'll give you one finding that really seems pretty clear, is that they have very high levels of what are called gamma range brainwaves. Mm -hmm. And these are brainwaves that indicate a great quality of integration and wholeness and receptivity to learning. Mm -hmm. So that people who have greater resting state, gamma wave activity, and who can also just drop into it in a way that had never been seen before by any of the scientists. This is a finding from mm -hmm. Richie Davidson's laboratory um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, so that itself suggests that something different is going on mm. in those kind of brains. Our Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom has published a paper, actually, that was a single-person case study. There are not that many people who can do this, of an individual who could drop into these very refined meditative states in the Buddhist tradition at will and uh, in his brain, it went through some major shifts hmm. that were consistent with the psychological description of these states of being. Hmm. Uh, could you delve into that? That's kind of fascinating. What do you mean by that? Oh, okay. So uh, kind of really, really summarizing Yeah, a lot. no, I mean, obviously, this is like yeah. a, a very brief summary of a pretty broad and deep thing, but, you know paint in broad brush strokes and right. tr just trust that we know that they're broad. Yeah. So there are states of being that are well known, uh, particularly in the more in the contemplative traditions around the world, uh, that are not ordinary. And I've experienced some of them myself. And there are well known states of being that go beyond what I've experienced myself mm -hmm. still. And this particular person whose name I won't give yeah. here uh, is someone who teaches these and is very credibly able to move into and out of them. And, and just as a detail, his own background is completely secular. Mm. He's a very grounded, highly intelligent person. So these states of being, for example, uh, to say it this way, in the Buddhist tradition of the jhanas, and these are states of being that were known to the Buddha 2,500 years ago, uh, the first one is characterized by a combination of applied attention, deliberately sustained attention, happiness, and bliss. Mm. All right, And those qualities can be discerned in an MRI. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. The activation of areas in the brain, notably, for example, in the frontal anterior cingulate cortex, very involved in applied attention and sustained attention with emotionally saturated and reward centers uh, marking the movement into happiness and bliss. In the second jhana, applied and sustained attention falls away. There's no more need for deliberate top-down regulation of attention. You're completely dropped in. And I can speak of this from my own experience. It's almost hard to get up out of your chair. Mm. You're just so dropped in. And in this person's brain, you could see activity reduce in the anterior cingulate areas, the prefrontal areas that are involved in top-down executive regulation of attention, they just went offline. They weren't needed anymore. 
because he was just thoroughly dropped in. But still, those emotional and reward centers were still cooking away with, with happiness and bliss. And then in the third jhana, bliss drops away. Um, so you, we could see some changes there. And then there's a further progression through the other ones mm-hmm. that remain, for an example. So, but to summarize really quickly, these are states of being that are described in certain kinds of ways through practice, and they're experienced in those similar ways. And what we can see is we can see activation in the brain in correlated areas that we would imagine would evoke those experiences. So there's a connection that's clearly happening there. Something is going on in the brain that is activating these states or maybe the other way around, who knows, but there's some relationship. I think you spoke to a very important point. Mm. The, The way I have of looking at this is not reductionistic or mechanistic because the flows of mental activity, uh, the flows of psycho- or psychological experiences have causal power of their own. Mm. They enlist the brain mm-hmm. in their own proceeding, which has a power of its own, like just the dialogue right here. You know, back and forth the exchanges, the meanings were exchanging, the feelings were exchanging. Yeah. They enlist underlying neural activity mm. to proceed. So it's a codependent arising kind mm. of way. Mm-hmm. The technical term for this is dual aspect monism, literally. That's a term. I learned it late in life. <laughs> anyway, for those of you who care about such things, so point being that uh, you're exactly right, that the two together co-arise. Awesome. So you've alluded to these seven practices. It's in the darn title. So we should probably talk about them at some point. Briefly. Briefly. (laughs) What are these seven practices, for starters, just to kind of name them so that uh, people who haven't yet read the book can get a sense of what they're getting themselves into? Yeah, and you can start doing it today because these are ways of being. Mm -hmm. And we develop these ways of being that, when perfected, I think really do characterize uh, a lot about people who are extremely far along, these seven qualities, they did really get developed. And I think when I name them and you just think about, in your own mind, people who seem profoundly far along mm-hmm. and admirably so, mm-hmm. uh, you could go, yeah, they all these seven are there. Maybe there's some more, but these seven for sure are there. Well, so when I name these seven, uh, people can recognize, oh, I have a feeling for that already. Maybe it's just a taste. Uh, especially for some of the subtler ones. But still, this is our endowment. This is our birthright. This is our home base, fundamentally. So the seven are steadying your mind, warming your heart, resting in fullness, being wholeness, getting a sense of being yourself as a whole, receiving nowness, that's the fifth, receiving nowness, really receptively present in this moment continuously, while opening into allness, getting a sense of being a local expression of everything, being supported by everything, not separated from everything and cut off and beleaguered, while finding timelessness. The last practice being the the most profound, um, and uh, we can relate to that last one entirely inside of ordinary reality, or for those who want to include the possibility of what may be beyond ordinary reality, we can extend it all the way out if we want. And these ways of being, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, a sense of emotional balance and um, equanimity and contentment, and then wholeness, nowness, wholeness, and timelessness, these ways of being, we can have a feeling for wherever we are. Mm. And over time, we can cultivate themselves. Mm. We can cultivate them in ourselves. 
for our own sake and obviously, I think, as we develop these in ourselves, we can become more and more useful to others. Well, it's a great list. I think that for most people listening, and myself included, as you were saying, we can get an individual sense of the ways in our lives today where we can get an experience of each one of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, even as you're describing the ones that are a little bit further into the deep water or yep. higher up toward the <laughs> summit of what, may, what, of what might be plausibly possible in terms of personal development. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a resting state of timelessness, I would say, at the moment. I'm working on it. But... I'm still working on that one too. Yeah, I think the first I think six most of us I feel are. pretty solid mm -hmm. on, and the last one I, I try to we're, be really quite modest. We're working about. on, yeah, yeah, totally. No, and I think that particularly for the ones that feel more this tricky language, because all of these seven I think are are grounded in both the body and the mind to an extent that those things are different. Yeah. They're probably not, but yeah. I think that we experience them differently. But I think that the first group of them in general feel very grounded in the body for me. Yes. Steadiness, Steadiness lovingness, lovingness, fullness, fullness equanimity. Yeah, totally. Just all of those things feel very like rooted into the earth. Yeah. And then it feels like it gets like a little bit more kind of high-minded the, the further yeah. up you go a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And so we're going to do another episode on all of this stuff where we're going to delve more into each of the seven practices. And particularly, I have an interest in talking with you about the last three because Ooh. I know that it was where, for starters, you spent the most, I won't say you spent the most time there per se in terms yeah. of the authorship of it, but I think that you spent the most thought energy there yeah. in terms of your engagement with it and the care with which you mm. had to treat those topics in Especially order- Especially the last one. Yeah, in order, A, to not, <laughs> I was gonna say to not offend anyone, but that might not happen, to, to <laughs> minimize the offensiveness of the material itself and also to make it grokkable for a quote-unquote normal person yeah. like myself or not a incredibly, incredibly, incredibly experienced meditator, somebody who's experienced these states inside of their own body. You've written extensively of different practices that people can perform or participate in mm -hmm. in order to establish a greater sense of mindfulness or a greater experience of the body as a whole mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Was there anything that you learned or looked at or studied during this book that was new and different for you, a, a surprise to you, a practice that people could do that you hadn't really stumbled upon or thought about deeply before in terms of getting into that sensation of the body as a whole? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I occasionally ask interesting questions. I try to well, do I always it. always do. Hey. Um, so maybe yeah. ask this question a different kind of way. Mm. Uh, you've spent at this point, depending on how you want to count, kind of 15 to 20 years really engaged with these questions having to do with um, the interconnectedness of Buddhism or uh, kind of broadly put the Dharma with the brain. Yep. And you've come across all of these great practices yeah. for studying the mind, focus and attention, calming the body, whatever it might be, you've written about them extensively over 20 years. And I'm sort of asking for you at, you know, 60 something years old, who knows how many, um, you know, not trying to date you here or anything pops, but uh, like even now at this I point in this so career, so old, so old, <laughs> even now at this point in your career, was there anything that you found that was new? or surprised you, or changed your view of something? Wow, a great question. Yeah. Um, well, honestly, in the wholeness material, mm. the 
ways in which, to do a quick neuro snapshot, that the, I'll just say, so here's the, here's the neuro piece. When we are caught up in task doing, or we're just spacing out, moving into daydreaming, we tend to really engage networks in the cortex in the middle top of the brain, midline networks, more toward the front for deliberate task doing, more toward the back in the so-called default mode network when we're ruminating, spacing out, and mind is wandering. In either case, when we're engaging that midline activity, we tend to be doing a lot of what's called mental time traveling into the future or the past, and there's a lot of me, myself, and I there. On the other hand, solid research from Norm Farb and colleagues that's been developed over time shows that when people move into sustained present moment mindfulness, just in the moment as it is, accepting their experience as it is, not chasing after anything, not regretting anything, not resisting anything, with a kind of a sense of concrete moment-to-moment experiencing, Mm. not very abstract, not a lot of verbal activity, not much sense of self, they engage networks on the sides of their brain, especially the right side for right-handed people, because that side of the brain, the hemisphere of the brain, uh, is very engaged with holistic, gestalt, nonverbal processing, while the left hemisphere for right-handed people is engaged with sequential processing, thus language, which Mm. proceeds sequentially. Well, this means that with training, and research shows it, if you do things that support these lateral networks, you can then be more autonomous inside your own mind. Mm. You can shift into and out of midline activations as appropriate. There's a place for task-oriented doing. There's a place for kind of spacing out and just creative daydreaming. Um, But on the other hand, at will, you can really... Mm. drop into what could be called the lateral mode. And to use a kind of summary term, if doing is central in the midline, being, the feeling of being, is really supported by these lateral right-sided activations, which are just switched for many left-handed people. And what really started to be powerful and has shifted my own practice in a way that I draw upon multiple times a day is to realize that as soon as you start to move into the sense of anything as a whole, people can do it right now, just feeling your whole body as you breathe here. Watch what happens to your own mind in the Mm -hmm. next few breaths, right? Body as a whole. Uh, Like a picture with many parts in it, but it's a single picture. The body as a whole is a single gestalt with many sensations in it, but appreciating it as a whole, it shifts things for you. And then you can get a sense of the room as a whole or the space you're in as a whole. Or if you like, and I explore this in the chapter, you can move more into your mind as a whole in the broadest sense. Hearing, seeing, thinking, sensing, all of it as one whole. And as soon as you drop into that, suffering decreases because the structure of suffering is parts struggling with parts. There's Mm. a kind of conflict or resisting this or grasping after that, clinging to them, and so forth. But when you're in the whole, the whole may include sadness. The whole may include physical pain. But the whole as the whole is not itself suffering. If there's not a problem in the whole, the Mm. mind as a whole. And you can explore this on your own as with everything in the book. It's all about experiential practice. It's a very practical book with a lot of 
experiential activity and just enough science or you know deep wisdom to sort of back it up. Yeah. But that, that's something that really came through to me. Mm. And so I've been cultivating uh, practices of my body as a whole, the sense of everything as a whole, recognizing the whole, mm. disengaging from the part and being the whole. And it's great, actually. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I was just getting an experience of that. As you were saying, it was cluing me into my experience when I dance. Mm. And I actually was just literally thinking about as people who listen to the podcast regularly probably know, I do a lot of dancing kind of recreationally as a serious amateur, but also somewhat professionally at, pre at previous times. And increasingly, I do actually a lot of coaching of relatively high-level couples inside of the community that I dance within. And one of the things that I was thinking about was, am I, I was literally envisioning myself moving, and I was just, it was calling to mind some of the ways in which while I'm dancing, sometimes I'll forget about my offside which is how they'll refer to it. Like you'll have one side that's connected to a partner, say mm -hmm. through my left hand, and I'll kind of just forget about what my right side is doing. Yeah. Because the focus of my attention is on my primary point of connection. So on that part. Yes, is on that part rather than the sense of the body as a whole. And one of the better pieces of advice that I've ever gotten about dancing is to remember the other half of your body. Yeah. You know, the, the half of your body that's quote unquote, not working as hard because it should be working just as hard because yeah. that's also what helps hold you up. Yeah. So. I just thought it was a great parallel to what you're describing here. That's fantastic, and it's totally true. Yeah. It, it also goes, and I explore this in that wholeness chapter, it goes to self-acceptance mm. and the parts of ourselves that we push away or feel ashamed of and push down. And there's a way to open all the doors inside the mansion of the mind. Now, maybe first we need to be resourced in the first three practices, steadiness, lovingness, and fullness, to be able to be okay with what's in those rooms as we open those doors. But eventually, it's when you open all the doors, including in the basement, and you bring to bear what are said to be the two traditional tools of a physician, light and air, uh, mm. <laughs> that you just feel better about yourself and you have an opportunity to, to heal and in some cases clear what's been locked away in those rooms. So I think that we have a little bit more time here, and you've just given me a wonderful prompt into the next thing that I would love to talk about. Uh, the book, as many of your books do, has a number of practices inside of it. You, as you have described yourself to me many, many times, are a quote-unquote practice guy. You like practice. I'm a methods guy. You're a methods guy. You like tools. And... You know, I, I don't know how regularly uh, people read through a book and actually perform the meditations that are offered inside mm. of them. I know that I myself have a bad habit of reading through a book and it has all of these like um, actionable moments or, or do this in your life. And I read and I go like, oh, that's a good idea. And then I never do it. <laughs> uh, but I read the book. I just don't do the practice inside of it, which is, you know, somewhat ironic as a guy who co-wrote a book that is largely based on personal practice. Uh, so that's my own failing there. But it really is essentially a book that's about practice, as you're saying. Yeah. Were there any particular practices inside of it that you just were really taken by, that you enjoyed writing, that you would like to give to people right now, however you want to frame it? Well, first, to your point about practice, uh, it's really remarkable that no matter what's happening to your body mm -hmm. or around you, inside your own mind, you can always practice. Mm 
Viktor Frankl talked about that, uh, Holocaust survivor, just really about that most fundamental of human freedoms to choose how we will respond. And something, Forrest, you've been really strong on and you've developed a lot is this notion mm. that Frankl suggested and others have pointed to as well, there, this space yeah, between stimulus and response. Yeah, it's a big one for me. Yeah, it's a big one for you. That that sense of spaciousness, the mm -hmm. inner shock absorber. One of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, I, I, totally. I think of it as a little bit like that mud room in you know, houses in the East Coast that are you get a lot of snow where yeah, yeah, you, know, you totally. come in mm -hmm. and you plop stuff down, but mm -hmm. the mud, the muddy boots, the dripping uh, dogs don't make it into the living room. Yeah, I for me in my own personal practice, I think that part of the part of the adventure has been finding the the right amount of out and the right amount of in in any given moment or interaction with another person. And that sounds like a dance move. Probably a conversation for another time. We could explore that <laughs> Can some I other interview time. you yeah, about hey, how I'm that, done for it? We'll, we'll get what, into it. Yeah. What have you learned from in and out through mm -hmm. dancing? Sure, yeah, dancing or, I mean, a lot of it, I think about it just really interpersonally, how people have a tendency, some people um, are two steps too in, yeah. if that makes sense. And when you're two steps too in, you feel the pain from the interaction that you're having with somebody else. If you think about it like a physician who's treating a patient, if you're two steps too in and the patient is dying of cancer, you're gonna feel a lot of psycho-emotional pain around this process. If you're two steps too out, yeah. you're gonna feel cold and distant, have poor manner, the patient's not gonna feel cared for or felt by you. But if you find the right spacing, if you can kind of ride the surfboard of that relationship a little bit, you can both mm. be warm and supportive while also maintaining the distance you need to make a good decision and provide good care. And trying to find that balance between those two things has been a major personal growth project for me over the last somewhere between five and 32 years, depending on how you want to kind of count it. But that's all a conversation for another day, probably. Which way do you feel has been your default that you've erred? Too far out. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you want yeah. to get kind of technical about it, yeah. um, I think that as a child, I was 12 steps too far in. Yeah. And mm. I felt a little whacked around by the world because and of that. Flooded by it. Flooded by it, overwhelmed, yeah. too much emotionality, too much uh, just going on in me. Yeah. And I responded to that by kind of leaning way too far out. And since I was, I don't know, pick an age, eight to 12 probably, I mean, you would probably almost have a better mm. sense of this than I would. I've begun a process of increasingly learning how to kind of wander back in with mm. another person. Uh, mm. So. That's That's been the kind of curve of it, I think, for me personally. Yeah, you know, it's so funny, Forrest. I would say my own life has followed that trajectory too. Mm -hmm. uh, and the timeframes actually were kind of different. I, in, I seemed like a very detached, hyper-rational, Spock-like uh, first grader probably by the, even by then, certainly by the time I was in sixth grade and, and 12th grade and even through a lot of college. In part as a reaction to, as I came to realize, I had a very highly empathic, warm heart, and I was just sort of overwhelmed by my family situation and then later on my school situation as a very young kid going through school. So netting it all out, it was when I was in my 20s, mm -hmm. actually, and even later, truly, uh, I've tried to learn how to come more in and to find that balance point. As you said, if you're so overwhelmed through empathy and openness, that you'd have to pull back too far. So paradoxically, finding that sweet spot of balance, right? 
uh, enables you to really stay connected with other people. Mm -hmm. So that's really great. Well, to your question, uh, practice. Uh, I'll tell you another practice that is explored more in the chapter on wholeness because it has to do with this natural rhythm in the brain between that shifts from uh, what's called an egocentric perspective perceptually, especially visually. Mm-hmm. Like, what's this got to do with me? Mm. It's very natural. Friend or foe, yeah. well, how's this relevant to me? And then there's this other natural cycle that the brain goes through that's called an allocentric perspective in which there's a sense of things impersonally as a whole yeah. without privileging any particular view in it. Mm-hmm. And the brain cycles back and forth naturally. Mm-hmm. You can kind of observe that in your own experience, interestingly. So one of the ways, if you're interested in developing more of this allocentric perspective, so you're less caught up in me, myself, and I, my precious, you know, what's that got to do with me, et cetera, one great way to do that is to move the gaze out toward the horizon. Hmm. Because naturally, as we move the gaze closer, and gaze really matters, roughly a quarter, if not more, of cortical processing is devoted to visual processing. Mm. The visual sense is very dominating. It uses more cortical, more neural hardware than any other sense we have. And so if you kind of use that fact to shift your consciousness by really engaging a major system, as you move your gaze out, right, it naturally gets more allocentric Mm. because when we look out to the horizon, when we see the whole surround, let alone raise our eyes to the heaven, heavens, it naturally takes us more into a big picture, impersonal perspective. Not impersonal in a sense of cold and no longer caring about ourselves, but just all of it. So I've been doing that more and more myself and just exploring the power of that simple move to let the gaze move out. It's particularly helpful if you're in troubling or stressful situations, if you're caught up in a quarrel with someone or you're just like that, you know, to just say, okay, I'm not trying to fight with how I feel. And also, I'm going to move my gaze out, even up mm. to the heavens. And um, there's, there's some of the people who've done research on this have made the point that maybe it's not merely coincidental that a lot of powerful existential, even spiritual experiences that people report involve them gazing out over a vast space mm. like an ocean, if not up to the heavens. Because you're actually activating a different part of your brain yeah. while you're doing that. That's right. Really fascinating. Yeah. And if you want some really hardcore yeah, stuff, yeah, just kind of dropping it mm-hmm. in. In the later chapters of the book, one of the things that struck me intensely and just got me then and even gets me now really excited is the way that experientially the sense of wholeness, nowness, and allness kind of come together. Mm. And people can explore that on their own. Mm. In other words, if you just have a sense of your body as a whole, uh, when you're not doing anything too busy, so the sense <laughs> of your body as a whole, so you can pay attention to what's going yeah. on, sense of your body as a whole, really resting in the present with a sense of the sensations in the body changing as new ones arise and Mm. reminding yourself that you're continually okay. No need to be alarmed that things are changing as they are. You're okay. Still here. So now you're kind of resting in nowness and you're, you're opening to this feeling of what's called an updating continuously of consciousness. If consciousness is like a windshield, 
you're sort of centering your focus on the you know the first quarter inch of that windshield, mm, the first mm -hmm. second or so, or first half second of the emerging moment, wholeness and nowness. You'll you'll find that that naturally tends to reduce the sense of me, myself, and I, and draws you more into a kind of a peaceful sense of connectedness, or as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, interbeing with all that is, allness. So psychologically, the three tend to go together. Wholeness, nowness, and allness, and so cool. Hmm. The underlying neural basis for wholeness, nowness, and allness, and allness also kind of goes together. To just hmm. summarize a whole bunch of stuff: uh, wholeness, right-sided networks, nowness, having to do with the continual updating of consciousness with, with ancient uh, attention systems that are very much involved with the sense of alerting and orienting to what's newly arriving. So they're involved in updating consciousness. They too are right-sided, mm. lower down, and the neural networks that support allocentric processing are on both sides of the brain, but they too are lower down. And so it's very plausible that much as the experience of wholeness, nowness, and allness seems integrated, mm. the neural basis for wholeness, nowness, and allness, which is mainly right-sided, is also integrated. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful piece of information for starters, and I think a great practice, both the practice of raising your eyes to the heavens, if you will, and the practice of kind of dropping into a felt sensation of that emerging now, yeah. however you want to frame it. And I'm sure that we'll get into both more during our second conversation, our next episode. But for the moment, I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Fantastic. I'm, I'm just so happy we're doing this for us. Happy that's you and me, and so happy to be exploring this material. Yeah, it's wonderful material. It's a great book, speaking not just as your child, but as a objective skeptical, or as a skeptical rational. Yeah. Yes, very careful reader of this kind of material. I think it's a great book. So again, it's available May 5th. That's the release date of it. Correct. It's available today for pre-order. Yeah. I'll include a link to that in the description of today's podcast. We'll also have that in the associated blog post that we put out about this episode. Also, as a reminder, uh, we now have a Patreon account. It's one of my favorite things. Yes. I totally love it when people support the Patreon. I love the work that I'm doing with it. Uh, for each episode of the podcast, we release expanded show notes that are truly incredibly detailed. I put a ton of work into them. Uh, if you subscribe at a certain level, you also get access to early interviews that we do with experts. Uh, we release a lot of other kind of little random goodies to people. We're releasing the full videos of these podcast episodes over there as well when we do one with just Rick and I. And uh, yeah, it's really kind of evolving and growing as we're doing it. And we already have a great base of support. So if you would like to support the podcast for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can go on over to patreon.com slash beingwell and uh, become a subscriber there. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to us through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review because it really does help us out. So until next time, thanks so much for listening. 